When I was a teenager, I heard someone <laughs> preach from the passage of 1 John I read before before service there, 1 John 4. And the thrust of the message was, if if you don't love your brothers and sisters, then you're not saved. And went on to talk about, if you don't love church, you're not saved. And if you don't love to go to Bible conferences, you're not saved. And if you don't uh, love to stay and talk after church with people, you're not saved. And, and all these types of things. And here I was, a 19-year-old uh, young man, and I was thinking, well, I come, I come to church and everybody that comes to this church is 65 years older than I am, and they talk about things that I don't know about and don't understand, and, and you know, they do, do th- I want to go out and, and go fishing and hunting, and, you know, they don't, they want to drink coffee and talk about things, and I thought, well, maybe I'm not saved, because uh, I don't have that, you know, I'd rather go out and, and, and do something that they don't like to do. And that really bothered me. It worried me because the, the thrust of it was there had to be some kind of uh, mutual affection, but it wasn't based upon what the Scripture said. Truly, we love one another, but I was taking a wrong definition of what love is and in taking a wrong definition of how to display that love one to another. And it didn't give me assurance in Christ, but it made me doubt. It made me afraid. Because I thought, well, you know, if, if I don't have the same kind of uh, emotional desire to be around people there at the, the, the church building as perhaps others, then I'm probably not saved. Well, is that what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about here? Um, I think that I had a wrong view of what love was because I was thinking about a sentimentality. I was thinking about sort of an emotion, uh, but not the way that the Bible describes love. And so I was, I was looking inward and testing my salvation based upon an unfit standard. My, my guidance was wrong. Um, and it, it took me off track a little bit. We were going to King's Edition yesterday, and there was, you know, the digital signs on the road that, that tell you about uh, road construction and everything. Well, there was one that was flashing that said right lane closed, or it said left lane closed. So we get in the right lane, and all the semis are getting in the right lane, and everybody's merging over to the right lane, and we're sitting in the right lane for 10 or 15 minutes, and we drive um, maybe a half mile, and we get up to the sign, and then the sign tells us to merge to the left lane. Whoever was in charge of the, the sign put the wrong lane down. So everybody was fighting to merge back into the other lane to avoid the traffic. So here we were following directions, but it was the wrong directions, and it took us in the wrong way. Well, we have to be careful that we, we don't take someone else's interpretation of what the Scriptures say and, and then uh, merge into the wrong lane. But, but to be careful to take what the, the Bible actually says and to take the lessons from what the Bible actually says and not a, a miscommunication of that. So what does that mean? What is John telling us here? Is John is the purpose of 1 John to, to make us all doubt by looking inward? Well, John 
is quoting from the Gospel. John is quoting Jesus when he tells us to love one another. And this love that we have to one another and for one another is definable by Scripture. It is a true love. It is a real love, but it's definable by Scripture. So my point is, we can find out what the Bible means by loving one another. Because the Bible tells us what that looks like and tells us what it is. And so we can take First John and say, okay, do I love the brethren? Because the Bible says if I'm saved, I'm going to love the brethren. But I'm not going to take what Disney says love is, or I'm not going to take what Hollywood says love is, and then judge, judge my love according to somebody else's standards. I'm going to say, okay, Jesus tells me to love. And John tells me I got to love. So I'm going to go to the same place to find out what this kind of love looks like and what this love is, and then we'll go from there. All right, so we're going to find, Jesus tells us here in this text. Now remember, Jesus is just a few hours away from the Garden of Gethsemane here. He's less than 24 hours away from the cross. And he spends this time with his disciples. And he spends this time loving them. And the first thing we see is, the love of Christ and explaining to them what's about to happen at, at Calvary. He tells them, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God glorified in Him. If God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in Himself and shall straightway glorify Him. So the, Jesus is here talking to His disciples because He loved them. That's what it said. He loves them and He loved them to the end. And here in His last hours, Jesus wants to spend those hours with His disciples. And his focus is on their good and their encouragement. And like the great shepherd that he is, watching over their souls. Jesus is about to lay down his life. And his concern is for them. He's about to endure the most terrible suffering that any person has ever endured. Not only the physical sufferings of the cross, but also the wrath of God, the cup to which the Father has given him that he's going to drink, he's going to have to endure that. No one has ever suffered that as much as the Lord Jesus Christ has. And he's about to endure that for these men. And here he is giving them in chapter 13, 14, all the way to 6 through 16, giving them instruction and teaching them and helping them and, and encouraging them and us too as his disciples. And then in chapter 17, he prays for them and prays for us. So we see the love of Christ here in what he's telling them. And he tells them that the what's about to happen, God is going to be glorified in. The Father will be glorified through the death of the Son. It was the Father who sent His only begotten Son into the world to die for the sins of His elect. The Father is glorified in the death of the Son. The Father loves His people. And so He is glorified in His love. He's glorified in the, His holiness. Think how much God must hate sin if 
the imputed sin was laid upon the son, and yet he, he punishes the son. And there was no leniency offered. But the father hates sin. God hates sin. And yet we see his, his love, not only love of righteousness, that, that sin is punished, but his love of his people, that, that he would ordain and work out in his providence this, this eternal covenant that we might have everlasting life. Oh, God is glorified at Calvary for what, um, for what we, he gave us. In his son. The son is glorified in the, at Calvary. Here, the great shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here, Jesus Christ offers himself as a sacrifice. Here, Jesus Christ um, shows his great love for us because there, there's no greater love than a man that would lay down his life for his friends. And yet, while we were yet sin, sinners, while we were the enemies of God, Christ laid down his life for us. Surely Christ is glorified um, there at Calvary. That he, like a sheep before the shears was dumb, walked there. He could have called the angels to prevent this and stop this. He could have destroyed every one of them for, for blaspheming his name. But he voluntarily and willingly laid down his life that you and I might have life. That's why... We come every week. That's why we gather together to lift up His name that we, that, because we have life through what Jesus did for us. Truly, Christ was glorified at Calvary. And so, after Judas left, Jesus explains this to them. Because He loves them. He loves these men. He knew His hour had come. And so Jesus tells his disciples, explaining to them what happened, what's about to happen. And he says, remember, when this happens, this is for the glory of God. Remember what I tell you. Remember what I did for you. Look to me. Look to me for comfort. Look to me for strength. Remember what I told you. And so... When it happened, what, what did the disciples do? Well, they ran in all different directions. We know that Peter denied the Lord. We know that they ran off and hid. Thomas began to doubt. All these things happened. But what? remember, Jesus told them, this is for the glory of God. And just a few hours later, they've, they've forgotten. So they're imperfect servants, just like you and I are imperfect servants. Don't we see the faithfulness of God here, the faithfulness of Christ, that he loves his disciples and tells us truths about what's happening and tells us truths about our own lives. And then we believe it in the good times and when the bad times come, uh, we, we lose heart and lose faith. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't forsake them, does he? He doesn't cast them aside. He loved his own which were in the world and loved them to the end. And so here we see the faithfulness of Christ explaining to his disciples, remember, this is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of my name. And reminds them to keep looking to them, looking to the gospel for grace and comfort and assurance. 
In verse number 33, we find the love of Christ and telling them that He will depart. He says, little children. Little children. Now, if we were going to talk to some little children, and we are about to tell them something hard, tell them something that they don't want to hear, we'd, we'd be affectionate towards them, wouldn't we? I'm sure every parent in here has had to tell a little child something they didn't want to tell them. Tell them, you know, your grandma's passed on or grandpa's passed on or, or some hard thing. And you don't want to do it, and you, but, but you know they need to hear it. And, and you, you sit down and say, little children, come here, children, I, I need to talk to you. Well, you do that because you love them. You do that pitying them and having compassion on them. And so when Jesus calls them little children, he, he's talking to them out of affection, out of love, out of compassion, pitying what they're about to have to endure. And it, it's amazing that the Lord Jesus Christ is about to suffer and die for sins. He's about to go to Gethsemane, where he will there pray for his people. And yet, his, his pity and his compassion still upon his disciples. That's a, a wonderful high priest that we have, a glorious Savior that we have. This whole conversation here is one of a good and faithful shepherd. Loving his own men, loving his own people, showing them his his grace and his compassion. Now, if we remember, whenever Judas was still there, and Jesus says, "Now one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to to uh, lift up your heel against me," he says in verse nineteen, "I tell you, before it come to pass, that when it's come to pass, you may believe that I am He." Right. So the the whole reason he tells them about Judas. And so whenever it happens, they won't, they won't be so flabbergasted. They don't understand what happens. But, but Jesus says, I'm telling you this now. So when it happens, whenever you're knocked back on your heels, you can say, well, the Lord told me this. I trust him. I trust him because he knew. And he, he knew what was happening. He is who he says he was. Remember who he Remember Jesus. Remember who Jesus said he was. And this is just one more proof. Because the disciples thought that Jesus was going to come in. Because remember they were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. They, they thought he was going to be coronated as king. And then if Jesus sits in king, the king of Jerusalem, then he'll overthrow the Roman government. And then Peter and James and John and and Andrew and all of them, they'll, they'll, have, they'll get to sit in Jerusalem as rulers. That's what they had in mind. That Jesus was literally going to sit on the throne and, and take over, literally take over the kingdom. You can tell that from the first chapter of Acts. Um, even then they thought that that was going to happen. They just had a confused understanding of what was about to happen. And so quite the opposite happened. Not all, that were they not ruling there, but they were running away. One of their own betrayed Jesus. Jesus is not brought in to sit upon the throne, but Jesus is brought in under arrest. And so they're knocked back on their heels. But Jesus says, now I'll tell you this. This is happening for the glory of God. This is happening 
uh, according to scripture, this is happening. And whenever you see it happening, don't lose heart. Look to me. Trust in me. And so Jesus, again, comforting his disciples, helping them, encouraging them by reminding them, remember what I told you. Look to me. When I die, I want you to remember this is for the glory of God. When I'm crucified, remember what I told you. What a good, good Lord that we have watching out for his men. What a good shepherd. What a compassionate priest. What an honorable king. We were reading about uh, David whenever Absalom chased him out of Jerusalem. And then Shimei comes along and starts throwing rocks at David as he's leaving and says, ah, you're getting what you deserve, you bloody man. Um, serves you right for what you did to Saul. And starts cussing him and throwing rocks at him and, and uh, laughing at him, mocking him because Absalom took the kingdom from him. And Shimei is all, he's excited about that because he hated David. Well, David, by God's providence, wasn't defeated. And not a short time later, he comes marching back into Jerusalem with all his people because uh, he defeated Absalom. And well, who was the first one to greet him? Well, it was Shimei. Oh, David. I'm sorry that uh, I'm sorry that I did that. Um, you know, I'm the first one here to welcome you back, and and you know, really, I shouldn't have said that because you are a good king. You know, he was just whatever side was winning was the side Shimei was on. And I, I sometimes feel that that's how uh, many leaders in government and and many. Uh, you know, it might be a boss or, or a manager or somebody. That's, that's how they are, that, that whatever side's winning, they'll be on your side as long as it does them good. But as soon as uh, it might cost them something, well, they'll jump ship to the other side. The Lord Jesus Christ is a faithful king. He's a faithful priest. And he's always going to be for his people. He's never going to be against us. The Lord Jesus Christ is never going to be against us. Now, we can be against him in the way that we live sometimes, and we can be unfaithful to him. But even when he chastens us, it's because he's for us. Even when he, he, he brings hardship into his life, it's because he loves us, not because he's against us. Because the scripture says, if God be for us, God is for us. Well, who can be against us? Well, no one can be against us because God is for us. And so... Jesus keeps reminding them. It looks like everything's turned upside down. It looks like everything's going wrong, but I want you to trust me. Remember what I'm doing for you. Jesus is not one to, to cast us aside when, when things look rough because the, he is the one that's in control. We can trust him. Well, what's this have to do with 1 John? Well, let's remember the tenor and the tone that we've seen so far. Little children. Remember, I'm for you. Remember, God will be glorified in this. And then he says in verse 34, A new commandment I give them to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that, this, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. Now, commandment's a law, so... That means that it's something you have to do, right? It's not a suggestion. 
But I think some people get the idea that because it's love, that's a little bit easier to follow than any other commandment. But loving God and loving your neighbor is the sum and substance of the whole Old Testament. You can sum up these Ten Commandments over here by loving God and loving your neighbor. So, in fact, no, it's not easier. It, it is equal to, it is the, the substance of the law. And I can't love perfectly any more than I can keep any of these other commandments perfectly. I, just, I can't do it, and you can't do it either. We don't have the, the capability to, to, to keep this. And see, that was where my first fault was. I said that that first John kind of shook me and caused me to doubt. Well, why was that? Well, because I first of all took a, the wrong view of the law. That I could perfectly keep it and stay in line with it. And that's just not the case. We, we cannot we cannot uh, keep the law perfectly in this, in this flesh. Doesn't mean that we ought not to 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 keep the law, it just means that, that we have a war within ourselves. And even sometimes when we want to do things, we'll do things that we don't want to do. You know, we're, we're still in this flesh. We're, we're Romans 7, fighting against uh, the, the law, the, the, the spirit against the law of the flesh in our hearts. But consider the heart and compassion of the Lord Jesus here and what's to follow. John gives us the context in verse number one. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then, verse number nine. Or uh, verse number ten, rather. Jesus said, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean. He said, you're clean, but not all, but, but you're clean. So he tells them about this cleanliness. Verse number 19. Talking about Judas. When this comes to pass, you believe that I am he. Have assurance when these bad things are happening. He calls them little children in verse 33. Let's keep on going. Chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe you believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me. Look to me. Trust me. Chapter 16, verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you. Now this is the end of it here. So from 13 to chapter 16, verse 33, this is all one section. These things, all these things have I spoken unto you that, that in me, you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The whole tenor, the whole tone, the whole theme of this section is Christ's love for his people and for us to look to him and trust him. That he's not going to leave us, he's not going to abandon us, but what he did at the cross was for our good. So, in that context, why would Jesus right in the middle of it say, okay, now here's something that you have to do in order to stay saved. 
Here's these things that you have to do in order to be saved. That that doesn't seem uh, that doesn't fit the re- the whole rest of the the section here, does it? Jesus is not telling us that we have to keep this commandment in order to be saved. Because Jesus is the one saving us. Jesus is the one that's dying for our sins. He's the one that has cleansed us as the washing of the feet uh, portrayed. So what is this law for? It is because he loved them. It is for their good. It is for their joy. Remember, he told the disciples after he washed washed their feet, and we read in verse number 10, he said that you're clean. And then verse 17, he said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So first they're cleansed, then they learn these things, and then if they do them, they'll, they'll be happy. It's for their good. It's for their joy. And so Jesus says, here's a commandment I'm going to give you, that you love one another. Why? So they'll be saved? No, because they're already saved. They've already been forgiven of their sins. They've already been washed clean. And Christ has already obeyed the law for them on their behalf. Jesus has loved perfectly for us. And so we stand righteous before God. And now he looks at us, little children, and says, I'm about to go, but... I want you to obey this command. I want you to love one another. It's an imperative. It's a law, but from the hand of Christ and not from Moses. Christ wants his people to follow him and to walk in the light as he is in the light. Not to earn salvation, but for the glory of Christ, for the praise of his name, for the good of our brothers and sisters for the good of our neighbors, and for the good of ourselves. And for our own happiness. Our, the law does not change, but our relationship to the law changes. Now, a lost person, you tell somebody that's unsaved to love, well, they can't love, can they? Perfectly. Because I can't love perfectly, and you can't love perfectly. No one can, except for Jesus. And so that law is condemning. That law condemns, because you say, well, I can't, I can't keep that commandment. And so whenever I heard 1 John, like I said at the beginning, when I heard that section, I thought, well, I can't keep that commandment. I'm not doing what I ought to do. Well, I was using the law unlawfully because I was a man... I was a man that had been justified. But see, what I had done was say, yes, I know Jesus saved me, but now I'm going to go back under the law for condemnation, and then I'm going to have to earn my salvation all over again. That's not what is going on here. Remember, Jesus is telling this for their good. He tells them in John 14, 16, that he's not going to leave them comfortless. He said, I'm going to leave But I'm not going to leave you comfortless. The Spirit will come. The Comforter will come. And in chapter 15, in verse number 4, he's not going to leave him alone because he said, Abide in me and I in you. So he's not going to forsake him because he says, You're going to abide in me and I'm going to abide in you. The Spirit, 
The Comforter will come, and he will comfort you. You are, you are abiding in me, and I'm going to abide in you. The Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and you are my disciples. The Father loved me, and I've loved you, so you just continue in my love. So he's, he's telling them, the Father's with you, I am with you, the Spirit is with you, but I won't be here bodily with you. And he looks to the disciples and he said, I want you to love one another. I'm not going to forsake you. The Spirit is not going to forsake you. The Father is not going to forsake you. But whenever I leave and you remain, I want you to love one another. I want you to love each other the same way I've loved you. It's not a new commandment in the sense it's unheard of, but I think it's a new commandment in the sense that how it's applied particularly. The disciples were always supposed to love one another. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. But now as a church, and I think this is what, where this direction, because if you follow that phrase, one another, for the rest of the New Testament, it's, it's talking about the church always. To care for one another, love one another, so forth. And so I think he's telling his disciples, he's telling his church there that bodily, I'm going to ascend to the Father, but I want you to love one another. I want you to care for one another. Just like I have loved you. Now here's where the definition comes in. This is a love that is like Jesus loved them. So we, we see how Jesus loves the disciples. And then we say, okay, well, that's how the Lord wants us to love one another. And it doesn't have a lot to do with sentimentality. But it has a whole lot to do with the other person's good. It has a whole lot to do with the care and the protection and the help of, of the other person. A giving up of your life that you can help somebody else. That's the kind of brotherly love that, that we're talking about here. I remember when I was little, somebody asked me to ask me if I liked my brother. And I didn't know how to answer that because I'd never thought about it before. Because I, 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 I remember thinking I didn't know that was an option to, to like him or not like him. <laughs> you know, he's just my brother. And um, it, it kind of set me back for a minute because uh, then I started thinking, well, do I like him? <laughs> but I, I loved him, right? It was a brotherly love. Well, he's my brother. Liking doesn't have anything to do with it. He's my brother. I'm going I'm to protect him. I'm going to care for him. And, and I'm going to help him if he needs help. And, and there's the, the closeness there. That That's not even in the question, right? The of the the feelings of it, it's you're there for them to protect them, to keep them, and and to to pursue their good. Paul says in First Corinthians fourteen one to follow after charity, to pursue it. And that word follow after is the same Greek word that's translated persecute in other places. So it's just the following after. You persecute somebody, you're following after them in an evil way. Um, you follow after in a good way is just to be 
zealously on, on track for that. Um, to, to, be a, to be following after in a good sense that you're pursuing charity for the good of that other person. That's all that's on your mind. Uh, we were down at uh, West Virginia State and uh, Elijah and Caleb had something there and we, the rest of us were in the parking lot and uh, this guy's walking a beagle down the street. And that was kind of funny anyway to see somebody walking a beagle down the street on a leash. Well, he's talking to somebody and this squirrel ran across the street and went up the tree. Well, that, that beagle was trying to treat that squirrel and that man was trying to talk to the woman and you know he's hanging on that beagle trying to pull it back. And finally he just walked over there and let it, uh, let it uh, treat that squirrel. Well, that squirrel took off running down the street and he was trying to hold it back. Well, eventually he gave up and, and so I'll just let that beagle chase the squirrel. And the funny thing is, though, he didn't let go of the leash. And so that man was running down the street with that leash in his hand. Um, and that beagle was chasing that squirrel and treating that squirrel. And uh, there that guy was sprinting after the beagle. And we went inside and looked. And uh, Jacob and Ethan told me that he was on the other side about three or four blocks down running the other way. <laughs> so that uh, he, he was treating the squirrels along with that beagle. But... That's all that's once he saw that squirrel, that's all he had on his mind. He, he was focused to, to get that squirrel. Well, that's how you and I ought to be focused, pursuing love one for another. Loving one another is a labor, it's a work. A law is something that you do, right? It's a, it's a law that we are to either refrain from doing or, or doing. So, honoring your father and your mother. You have to do something to honor them. Honoring your father and mother is not feeling. You have to do something. Remembering the Sabbath day is an active thing that you have to do. A law is either refraining from doing something bad or doing something actively. Well, we are to actively labor in love. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 It's a labor of love. It's a work of love. Um, sometimes we might think the labor of love is loving what you do. But I think in this, in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, it is the work of doing love. The labor of love in that regard is, is love, doing the work associated with loving one another. Jesus loved his own. He loved his own in the world. He loved his own to the end. He loved them as he washed their feet. He loved his people. And so, I think, for us to love one another in the church, we are to love as Jesus loved. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. And His love is perfected in us. So the expression of our love is directed towards each other. You love God. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you know, love like I love. Follow my example and love the brethren like, like I loved you. And so our, our brothers and sisters here are the objects in which we glorify God by loving one another. Isn't that amazing how the Lord 
does that in his church that, that the way that we can express our love and gratitude for what Jesus did is by serving other people and, and blessing other people and loving them. And how the church is a mutual, um, mutual means by which we build each other up because we love Christ. Now, the legalists, the Jews would like to do outward ceremonies but have no heart in it. And the Greeks would like to do everything inwardly but have no um, good for others. So um, the theologian Voss noted that they, the Jews had been overly concerned with external acts divorced from the spirit of devotion. The Greeks in their philosophy were more concerned with duty as it related to the inward life and the individual. And so you have a lot of that with some people who, who focus more on their individual service to God rather than the community of the church, the, one another. I'm not saying your individual service is not important, but what I'm saying is if you read through the New Testament, much of the good things that we are to do are directed towards one another. So A.W. Pink, for example, I read his biography, and he got to the last end of his life, the years of his life, and he holed up in his house, and he quit going to church, he quit preaching. He just read his Bible and study and write. Because he thought, well, I'm going to be dedicated to God and just focus everything on that. Well, that's not how the scriptures tell us that we are to glorify God. We are to be showing love one towards another, together, gathered together. So I'm going to read some passages here. Galatians 5.13 For brethren, you have not been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Paul, Paul says we're not under the law and we're not, we've been set free. We don't have to go back under the Old Testament. We've been set free. But don't use this liberty to serve yourself in the flesh. But use this liberty to love one another. That you have been set free in order to love one another. Peter said the same thing, that we've been purified, um, we obeyed the truth of the Spirit in 1 Peter 1.22, unto an lo- unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Or be dedicated, pursue this love one for another. Now remember, these are the same guys, John, 1 John, Peter, same guys that were fighting over who's going to be the greatest. Okay? They were not perfect. And they didn't show that love perfectly. And they fought, and they bickered amongst themselves. How many times did Jesus have to call them out for fighting amongst themselves? And they... And what they say? Love one another. They had a brotherly love one for another. They were not perfect. But they put one another first. They served one another. Christ will call us to seek the good of others. Not merely out of duty, but but out of love. Um, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. Romans 12.10 
Philippians 2.4, Look not every man to his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. And so, how do we love one another? Well, the Lord gives us gifts. Have you ever noticed the gifts that the Lord gives are not to be used, are not just the individual gifts, but to be used in the body for the good of one another? So, um, whether it be, um, well, it just doesn't matter where you go. First uh, Corinthians 12 for example. We look at those gifts. They're to be used in the body. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. So he's talking about being one. And, and the body is, is different. And, and everybody has different spiritual gifts. The body is one, but you know we're not all eyes, we're not all hands, we're not all feet. But you're a body of Christ, members in particular. God has set some in the church first, apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles. Then the gifts of healings, helps, government, diversity of tongues. And, and so these are all gifts there at that, in, in this early time. But notice all these gifts were for the, these apostolic gifts and these, these gifts of the early church were all toward the body. Not to just to go out and to practice individually. So the gifts that God gives us are to be used upon the brothers and sisters on the church. And so we love we use our we love one another by using the gifts that God gave us. And so whatever gift that the Lord has given you um, in, in Romans 12, 11, talks about gifts gift differing. <coughs> Ministry, which is just service, in verse number 7. Teaching. Exhortation. Well, that's just encouraging people. Providing comfort one to another. Ruleth. That's just oversight. Mercy. Giving. Cheerfulness, rejoicing, distributing, blessing. All these gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to his people are not gifts that you just use in your living room and with your, with your quiet time, but these are gifts that, that, that God gives us in order that we might love one another. And so let's, let's start back, or let's... Let's close, rather, to where we started with 1 John, where, where John makes it clear that if you're saved, you're going to love the brethren. You're going to love one another. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, the, the standard that was given... Whenever I heard that, the standard was, um, you know, do it staying after church and, and doing these things or going to, to Bible conferences and so forth. That was the standard of brotherly love. Was, well, what's the standard of, of biblical love? 
Well, it's coming to the house of God and encouraging one another. It's coming to the house of God and worshiping with one another. It's, it's finding, it's, it's seeing somebody that needs help and, and helping them. It's, it's knowing that somebody is in trouble and praying for them. It's giving yourself and giving your life for the, the, the benefit and the help of others. And so, here I was going to church and talking with people and helping people. If somebody needed something, I'd help them with it. And, and I thought, well, this is just, you know, do I really love them or am I just here because, you know, they're just like second nature family and so forth. Well, that, that's what, that was what love was. It was actually, it was being there with them and helping them and, and living for them and living with them. And, and encouraging and, and, and giving and, and worshiping together. According to biblical love, a, a family, a brotherly love, a, a care that, that is greater than just liking, but one that you'd lay down your life for somebody for, that you'd help them, that was time to be in the house of God with my brothers and sisters. See, this goes along exactly with what Jesus was telling them. I'm going to leave, but you all love one another. I have, I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the Father, but you're not going to be alone. I'll be with you. The Spirit will be with you. The Father is with you. But particularly, love one another. As I'm gone, I want you to love each other and take care of each other and bear one another's burdens and help one another and pray for one another. And if somebody falls, you lift them up. And if somebody goes off the track, you go and, and, and get them back on the track. Maybe with love, maybe with compassion, maybe you got to grab them and pull them out of the fire and get a little tough with them. Just like you do with your brother or your, your sister in your family. You know, sometimes you get a little, you have to get a little rough when you're kids to, to, to help one another or, or so forth. Well, sometimes you have to do that. But it's a true love because you care for them and, and, and you give yourself for them just like Jesus did for us. So that's the commandment, to follow Jesus and pursue the good of our brothers and sisters here in this local body. This is the example of love that we love the brethren like Christ loved us.